Well, that was an interesting song. Aaron's beard. Uh, Herman's do. Is that what we just read? What we just sang? Uh, those are words straight out of Psalm 133. And that is our text, our scripture text for today. And so I invite you to turn with me in God's word to the book of Psalms, 133. After today, we've only got one to go. In our study of the Psalms of Ascent, we're going to wrap it up next week with 134. So we are drawing quickly to a close. As you find Psalm 133, let me read uh, this. It's brief, but let me share it. And I hope it will help uh, crystallize our thinking where we're going to go this morning. A church was having its monthly business meeting. The moderator asked if there were any special needs. One lady stood and said that she felt the church needed a better, a brighter chandelier. A deacon jumped up and shouted, I'm against it for three reasons. Number one, nobody knows how to spell it. Number two, nobody knows how to play it. Number three, what this church really needs is better lighting. And uh, I'll leave it to your imagination. We can all imagine the scene which ensued after, after that little exchange. And it is a scene which has repeated itself on innumerable occasions in the history of the church. And what we have in Psalm 133 is David's celebration of unity. Thanks, Teresa. David's celebration of unity, and in particular, unity among God's people, and unity as God's people gather to worship. And so follow along as I read this brief song. We just sang it almost word for word, and here it is again. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so here David celebrates this wonderful theme of unity. And basically, he's just conveying one straightforward Extremely simple message. It's this. Unity is. It's a blessing. You envision that scene which I just shared with you of that uh, discussion, undoubtedly a debate over a chandelier, and how that has played out throughout the centuries. What usually happens after discussion is like like that is what what happens. You get two individuals, two groups, which have a, a disagreement, a falling out, and there are one of two possible results. The first is what we call Cold War, right? Lines are drawn, territories are identified, and these individuals, these groups, they never enter into direct conflict. They simply fight their battle through other groups, Cold War. Or the second thing that happens is what? Outright civil war. And the two individuals or the two groups go at it, and they end up tearing the church absolutely apart. Oh, unity, biblical unity, what it means to be unified in the Lord. That is what David is celebrating here. And his message is simply, is simply this. Unity is a blessing. It is God's blessing. He says two things about this blessing. The first is this. He describes its nature. Basically, it's the whole psalm. 
And so in the very first verse, what does he say? Here's the nature of this blessing. Behold, notice his twofold description, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He knew what he was talking about. David knew firsthand what disunity was all about. He knew disunity on a political, national level. You think of what happened before he became king and how he was chased by Saul, spent years running from Saul and the division that existed politically within the nation of Israel. That continued even after he became king. After David became king, it wasn't all rosy. He was anointed king of Judah, and that was it. The other tribes, who was their king? Ishbosheth. He was the son of Saul. And what happened? Civil war. So David knew what this kind of disunity on a political, national, cultural, civil level was all about. And so he could cry, how good, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But he actually isn't thinking politically. He isn't thinking on a national level. He could also have applied this to his family situation. He knew firsthand what it means to live in a house divided. You think of his sons and the history of his sons, Amnon and Absalom, Adonijah and Solomon. And his household is a story. It is the history of what? Strife, disunity. And David could very well have cried in the midst of that strife and disunity, oh, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But he isn't thinking of his family. What's he thinking of? He's thinking of God's people. Comes out in verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. That's what he's referring to. Remember, these psalms were sung as the people went to where? Jerusalem to celebrate annual feasts. And so they anticipated gathering as one to worship God. And that is what David is celebrating. How wonderful it is. Oh, what a blessing this is when God's people gather in God's place to worship Him. It is good and it is pleasant. Some things are good without being pleasant. Medicine, right? Most medicine. It's good for you, but it's not very pleasant. Lots of things are pleasant without being good. I won't even begin to go down that road. But what David celebrates here is what? Unity is? It's both. It is good and it is pleasant. Why is it good? It's good because it's God's ultimate design. God is triune. That is what we have been celebrating. I hope you didn't miss it this morning. That is what we have been celebrating. God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. Three persons in one essence. And God lives in a relationship with Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit, this eternal relationship of mutual delight. God, our God, is a relational being. And God desires a relationship with His people. And He has made us, what? Relational beings. And He has designed us to find satisfaction in a relationship with Him and flowing from our relationship with Him a relationship with one another. That is how he has created us. That is how he has designed us. And he has declared it to be good. Not only good, but he has declared it to be pleasant, beneficial. It cultivates worship. It encourages service. 
It provides protection. It facilitates accountability. It imparts strength. It develops identity. It affords stability. It supplies support. It nurtures contentment. And it honors God. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so we have the nature of this blessing. But he doesn't stop there as he continues to celebrate the nature of this blessing. He compares it to two things. And this is where the the psalm gets a little quirky and a little difficult for us. First of all, he compares it in verse 2 to what? Oil. Olive oil, I suppose, or something like that. Oil on the head. Running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. That's Moses' son, right? The first great high priest. Running down on the collar of his robes. I get the eebie-jeebies whenever I think of that. The idea of something being poured on my head, running down my head, anything that gets between my neck and the collar, that just is disturbing for me. Barber's chair after the cape is taken off, the clippings are down the back of your neck. That's something that just drives me crazy. I have a hard time entering into how this is pleasant. But this, this would conjure up for the Israelites something marvelous. Because this anointing of Aaron's head was symbolic of the entire anointing of the priesthood and its consecration to the Lord. And so David is pointing to something wonderful. He is pointing to something good. He is pointing to something pleasant and comparing it to brothers who dwell in unity. And then he gives a second comparison, verse 3. And it refers to a mountain named Hermon, way up on the northern boundary of Israel. And a mountain known for its plentiful moisture, refreshing. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Oh, refreshing. It's like the oil on Aaron's head, something so precious, something so valuable. Speaking of consecration, it's like the dew. That moisture which replenishes creation, which flows down Mount Hermon. And so this is the blessing. He sums it up in the very last statement of verse 3. There the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Where there is unity, there is life forevermore. So there's the nature of the blessing. Second thing he does in this psalm as he celebrates unity. And unity among God's people as they worship is he gives some attention to the origin of this blessing. And he draws us heavenward. Notice the terminology, the phrases he uses. First of all, in verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head running down. The idea of descent. Running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. He uses the phrase again a second time. Running down on the collar of his robes. Downward descent. Same idea, different phrase in verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. What is he conveying? Simply this. The unity of which he speaks has its origin where? It descends from God. It descends from heaven. This unity is not manufactured by us. This unity is not a simple case of us all standing around the campfire holding hands and singing Kumbaya. That is not the unity he is speaking of. He is speaking of a unity created by God himself. A unity that falls on us. A unity that runs down from us. As we come to the New Testament, it becomes clear this unity that he has in view. It is a unity with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When the Lord Jesus Christ died upon Calvary's cross, he purchased a bunch of things for us. He purchased the forgiveness of sins. He paid our debt. He bore the penalty for our sin. And in so doing, he purchased God's forgiveness for his people. He purchased an eternal inheritance. Right now, we are seated with Christ positionally in the heavenly places, and He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And the day will come, the kingdom inaugurated, when we will enter into all of those blessings, and we, the meek, we shall inherit the earth. He purchased redemption. He purchased freedom from God's punishment, God's condemnation, God's wrath. And He purchased unity. He purchased something which was completely lost in the garden. When man was alienated from God, and not only alienated from God, but estranged from one another. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the restoration of this unity. A restoration, a unity purchased at Calvary's cross, and then a unity that is realized when we become Christians, the Spirit of God enters in, and by virtue of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, we are made one with Christ. That is what the Lord Jesus prayed, John 17. He prayed, I want you to make them one, Father. I want you to make them one, one with me, just as I am one with you. That is marvelous. How is the Lord Jesus one with the Father? It's the essential union. They are one in essence, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he uses that as the standard, the object. I want you to make them one with me, just as I am one with you. And so just as the Spirit, the Spirit is the bond that unites Father and Son, the Spirit is the bond that unites us, the people of God, with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an indissoluble union, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, prayed for by the Lord Jesus Christ, and sealed and accomplished by the Holy Spirit Himself. It is a unity that descends from above. And this is what David is celebrating. Oh, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers actually dwell in unity. Not something we manufacture. Definitely not something we create, but if we cherish it as we ought, it is something we will do everything, for which we will do everything within our power to maintain. So Paul exhorts us in his epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1, he exhorts us, he commands us, it's a commandment, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In the Lord Jesus Christ, our calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity is already there. We celebrate that unity purchased by Christ, prayed for by Christ, accomplished by the Holy Spirit, a unity which descends from above, a unity which is a blessing of God. And what we are called to do as believers is to cherish it. And in cherishing it, we will strive, we will be eager to do what? Preserve it, maintain it. And what I want to do in the remainder of the time this morning is walk us through how that is done. Okay, we get it. It's a very simple song. Nothing complicated here. Yeah, 
couple of mental images there that are a little disturbing, but yeah, okay, I get it now. I figure out what he's saying. Very simple intent, very simple message. I've got it. And what he's trying to convey is this. We should cherish unity. We are to celebrate it. If indeed that is true, then I have a responsibility to heed the command of the Apostle Paul to do everything within my power to maintain it, to preserve it. What does that look like? And I'm going to answer that question with ten questions. I'm going to personalize them. I'm going to put them to you in the first person singular. Questions I often ask myself, not always using these words or terms exactly, but certainly the same ideas, the same motifs running through these ten. And so here's question number one. It's this. Do I sense the importance of this duty? Do I sense the importance of the duty? In other words, do I even even ever think about this? Does this ever even cross my mind? Do I appreciate Psalm 133? Do I appreciate the message of Psalm 133? Do I really get what David is saying here? If I do get what he is saying, this is going to be at the top of my to-do list. If this is really as valuable as David is saying, it is valuable. If David cherishes it, and I should cherish it like that, then this is something that eclipses many of the things I deem to be important. Do I sense the importance of this duty? And if I sense the importance of this duty... I will understand it is worth surrendering my individual rights. It is worth surrendering my pet peeves. I do have some. It is worth surrendering my hobby horses. I've got lots of them. It is worth surrendering my cultural preferences. It is worth surrendering my personal interests, all for the sake of maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's question number one. Do I sense the importance of this duty? Question number two is this, first person singular. You can apply these to yourself as the Spirit leads you. Do I bow to Christ by submitting to His Word? My attitude toward the Word of God is my attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. They're inseparable. My submission to the Word of God is my submission to Christ. They are indistinguishable, inseparable. What Christ says is what the Word of God says. What the Word of God says is what Christ says. So if the Lord Jesus holds this unity in such high esteem, if this is actually something He died for, if this is actually something He poured out His lifeblood for, then am I prepared to bow, submit to Christ by submitting to His Word? Or am I downright negligent when it comes to this duty? Something I never give a moment's thought to something I give no attention to at all. If I'm negligent in carrying out this duty, if my nose gets bent out of shape every time someone crosses my desires, my aspirations, my dreams, if I'm determined to get my own way in each and every circumstance, if my feelings are hurt because I don't think I'm given the attention I deserve each and every day of the week, you know what I'm doing in each and every one of those situations? I am sinning. And you know what I need to do in each of those, every one of those situations? I need to repent. I need to submit myself to Christ by submitting myself to His Word, understanding the esteem He has for the unity that He exists, a unity which He has created, He has purchased, He has created by the Holy Spirit. Question number three is this. As I seek to maintain and preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Do I promote truth? Truth is not contrary to unity. As a 
Matter of fact, unity is impossible apart from truth. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In other words, that you would be united in your pursuit of truth. Now, that's one of the reasons why creeds are important. It's one of the reasons why confessions are very important. It's one of the reasons why we have a foundations course here at Grace Community Church. We need to be clear on what are the essentials. We need to be clear on what it is the Bible articulates. We need to be clear on what it is exactly we believe. Uh, we need to be perfectly clear on what are the non-negotiables when it comes to the Christian faith. There's a quotation at the bottom of the sermon notes. If you are not using the sermon notes, you might want to pull them out just for a moment. And look at the quotation at the bottom of the insert, the bottom of the sermon notes from John Stott. And look carefully at what he says there. In fundamentals, there he's speaking of non-negotiables. Non-negotiables in the Christian faith, the essentials. In fundamentals, faith, that is the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, is primary. And we may not appeal to love as an excuse to deny essential truth. In non-fundamentals, however, love is primary. And we may not appeal to zeal for the faith as an excuse for failures in love. Oftentimes, we're guilty of both. I've met lots of people who fall into that first category. In John Stott's quotation, they do appeal to love as an excuse to deny essential truth. And so it goes something like this. Well, it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter if you believe the Bible is the inspired and errant Word of God yeah, that is authoritative and all-sufficient. That doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what you believe concerning the, the Incarnation the hypostatic union, it matters. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you believe uh, concerning the crucifixion, exactly what transpired at Calvary's cross, the true nature of the atonement. It doesn't matter what you think or believe what your position is on the resurrection. It doesn't really matter how clear you are on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, it doesn't matter that you're living in a moral life. It doesn't matter that you're sleeping with your boyfriend. Uh, it doesn't matter that you were drunk last night, but you're here worshiping the Lord this morning. Um, it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we, we love one another. Jesus loves you and just takes you as you are, no matter what you believe, no matter how you live. No, 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 my friend. In fundamentals, the faith is primary, and we may not appeal to love as an excuse to deny essential truth. The second is equally true. I've met lots of people, and I've fallen into this on occasion. I'll confess it where we appeal to zeal for the faith, zeal for truth, as an excuse for failures in love. And we do that in the realm of non-fundamentals. We do that when it comes to secondary issues. Oh, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I alone am right, you must confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat, and drink only what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and then and only then, I will fellowship with you. Uh, we've all met people like that. 
And this is a room full of people like that. We all have our hobby horses. We all have our pet peeves. We all have our secondary, tertiary issues, which we think are mountains worth dying on, but they're not really hills worth dying on. In the grand scheme of things, some of these things upon close, careful, long scrutiny aren't really worth anything at at all. When it comes to non-fundamentals, there is room for negotiation. And we may not appeal to zeal for the faith as an excuse for failures in love. I was pained not that long ago for a couple of reasons. Let me try to explain this. I was preaching at a conference. I'm not going to tell you anything more than that. Don't ask me later for details. You try to put the pieces together. A conference, let's say. And afterwards, two, two ladies, two women approached me and uh, a little bit of small talk. And then they asked, uh, I hear you live in such and such a place. Um, this lady here, my sister here, she's moving to a town close to such and such a place. And she is looking for a church which celebrates the Lord's Supper in such and such a fashion. So it wasn't, we're looking for a church with a, with a strong confessional slant. We're looking for a church which is clearly Trinitarian. We're looking for a church which is gospel-centered, gospel-focused. We're looking for a church which is unequivocal, non-negotiable when it comes to the authority of God's Word. No, she's looking for a church which celebrates the Lord's Supper in a kind of certain way, nuanced way, because she assumed I went to that kind of church. Well, did I ever burst her bubble? I said, well, I'm not really familiar with that kind of church in my area. There wasn't another word spoken. She locked her arm with that other woman, turned around, and just simply walked away. She no longer had any use for me. That pains me. But you know why it pains me even more? I am guilty of doing the very same thing in my past, not so distant past, where we make mountains out of molehills. Oh, do I promote truth? And can I discern? Oh, God, give me discernment. I pray this every day. Give me discernment between great and small essential and trivial, important and unimportant. And am I I able to differentiate between beliefs, truths, that go everywhere, touch everything, and beliefs and truths which basically, when it's all said and done, go nowhere? Do I promote truth? Question number four is this. Do I seek to grow in grace? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 Four and five, very well known. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. There we have humility. Humility, it's the root of every Christian grace. Humility is the root of love. Love is what? It is patient. Pride isn't. Love is kind, pride isn't. Love isn't jealous, pride is. Love doesn't boast, pride does. Love isn't arrogant, pride is. Love doesn't act unbecomingly, pride does. Love doesn't seek its own interests, pride does. Love isn't provoked. Love is not provoked, pride is. Love does not take account of a wrong suffered, pride always does. Oh, do I seek to grow in grace? Do I seek to grow in Christ-likeness? 
put on. Put on that attitude which was in Christ. Brotherly love, says A.W. Pink, is a tender, tender plant which requires much attention. If it be not watched and watered, it quickly wilts. Brotherly love is a tender, tender plant which requires much attention. If it be not watched and watered, it quickly wilts. This past summer, I decided, actually, I guess it was spring. Yeah, early spring. It was still maybe early April. I decided it was time to put a bush in the, in the backyard. Rose of Sharon. I think that's what it was called. Pretty little flower on the picture anyway. And I put this little plant in the backyard, and within a couple days, we had a, a frost that night. And uh, to my chagrin, the thing turned brown, and the leaves just fell off, but I didn't give up. And I was out there every other day watering it, talking to it once in a while. I didn't stroke it. I didn't go that far. Talking to it once in a while. Uh, just a little breathing, a little encouragement. And oh, a couple weeks later when that first bud popped through the stem and then the leaves and it was healthy and bounding and those roses began to appear and I had this beautiful, this beautiful plant, this beautiful bush. But oh, the attention it required. Oh, the attention, a bush. And, and, and how it had to be so regular in watering it and pruning it and caring for it. That's the imagery there. A.W. Pink's trying to convey brotherly love. It is a tender plant which requires much attention. If it be not watched and watered, it quickly will. So make sure you're watering it, brothers and sisters. Make sure you are tending to it. Make sure you are watching it. How? Keep yourself in God's love. Again, we've been celebrating this morning our triune God. A God who is love, meaning what? The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Father. The Son loves the Father. A God who is love. A God who dwells in love. Mutual delight in Himself. God loves Himself. And God has manifested this love for us, His people. How? We see it in terms of the Trinity. We see God's love in God triune. We see the Father's love. He set it upon His people way before the foundation of the world. We see it in time through the incarnation, the love of the Son who came and humbled Himself, who gave Himself as a servant, who poured out, manifested, declared the love of God upon Calvary's cross where He bled and suffered that agonizing death for His people. And we've experienced it, the love of the Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans 5, the Spirit of God has been poured out into our hearts. And by virtue of that pouring out, we cry, Abba, Father. Oh, the love of God, the love of this triune God. Christian, get yourself daily under the love of God. And as it is so wonderfully and powerfully displayed, at Calvary's cross. Peter writes, 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. We only do that as the love of God compels us and controls us. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now stop smiling because that verse has been sorely abused. I have sat across from people ready to divorce their spouse, 
committed adultery. I mean, done some terrible things. And um, they've latched onto that verse. Well, you've got to love me earnestly because love, and then with a twinkle in their eye, covers a multitude of sins. Oh, hermeneutical gymnastics. Oh, my kingdom for a context. That has nothing to do with this verse. What is Peter saying there? Simply this, yes, love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It means simply this, you are to love me to such a degree that when I offend you, and I have, and I do, and I will, your love is so great, it covers my sins, the offenses. They seem negligible. They seem rather irrelevant in the light of God's love. And it also means equally true, I'm trying to rack my brain here to see if this has ever happened, if you offend me, can't really think of anything right now, I nearly choked on that, if you offend me, or if you offend me in the future, I love you earnestly in the light of God's love, and that love, what does it do? It's like water, the offenses are like water off a duck's back, because love covers a multitude of sins. Oh, do I seek to grow in grace, the love of God and that humility, which is the root from which love flows. Question number five is this. Do I refrain from judging? That's a good one. Do I refrain from judging? If I am going to maintain, preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, I must refrain from judging. Judge not that you be not judged, probably, in my estimation, one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied verses in the entire Bible. Judge not, that you be not judged. Hear it all the time. You have no right to judge me. The church has no right to judge me. I'm about to burst that bubble. The church is called to judge us. We are called to judge. The Lord Jesus, in that context, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, judge not, that you be not judged, he is not saying we are to just throw discernment out the window. He is not suggesting or hinting for one moment that we do not judge. He is what? He is rebuking a hypocritical spirit and a hypercritical spirit. But this idea that we must never judge is something that has been infused into the church today and is completely antithetical to Scripture. The reason it has made headway in the church is because most of us subscribe to moral individualism. It's a philosophy. Most of you have probably never heard of it, but most of us believe it. Moral individualism, which is what? You have no right to tell me how to live. And you have no business telling me that something I have done is wrong. And then we latch onto this verse, misuse it, misapply it, judge not that you be not judged. You think of the Apostle Paul. He wrote his epistle to the church in Galatia, the Galatians. Why did he write that epistle to the Galatians? He wrote it because they were straying from the pure, pristine gospel. And they had adopted circumcision and they were falling into a form of legalism. The Apostle Paul did not write his epistle to the Galatians and he did not say, look, just love each other and get along, hold hands Try maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What did he do? He teared a strip off them, and he rebuked them. He judged them. Why? Because it does matter what we believe. 
You read his letter, his first epistle to the Corinthians. Hold on for dear life. Paul is carrying a big stick in that epistle. Why? Because he's writing to a church which had basically reasoned to itself, it doesn't matter how you behave. So the church in Galatia, it doesn't matter what you believe. We'll believe anything. Church of Corinth, it doesn't matter how you behave. And what were they doing? They were turning a blind eye to sexual immorality in their midst. Well, Paul doesn't write his first epistle to the Corinthians and say, look, I know that's going on, but hey, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. I'm just going to quote Peter here for you, misquote Peter for you. He doesn't say, well, just, just try to get along and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, you know, just come as I am. It doesn't matter. You can basically live however you please. What does he do? He rebukes them. Why? Because it does matter how we behave. It matters what we believe. And we're to judge. It matters how we behave and we're to judge. Judge not that you be not judged. Nothing to do with that. Christ is simply rebuking what? A hypercritical, where we're critical of everything and anything, and a hypocritical attitude. But Paul does say something interesting, fascinating in Romans chapter 14. It's this. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Well, what does he mean there then? Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. He is not suggesting for one moment, it doesn't matter what you believe, let's not pass judgment on one another. He is not suggesting for one moment, it doesn't matter how we behave, let us not pass judgment on one another. There is a context. Again, oh my kingdom for a context. There is a context in Romans 14. What is it? He is speaking about the observance of certain days. Some people think they're holy, some people don't. He's speaking about certain foods or drinks. Some people think that's sinful. Some people don't. He is speaking of issues which are of a secondary nature, right? And he basically tells them, look, the kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking and observing days and all these things. The kingdom of God is this. It consists in righteousness, peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit. He sets them straight. And all these other things are secondary issues. And as you quibble and as you fight over things, I want you to remember these things. I want you to remember three things. And he mentioned these in Romans 14. Number one is this. Christ died to be our Savior. Number two is this. Christ rose to be our Lord. And number three is this. Christ is coming to be our judge. And so, yes, when it comes to doctrine, we must exercise discernment and judge. When it comes to behavior, we must exercise discernment and judge. But when it comes to these issues which are of no ultimate importance, when it comes to the kingdom of God, you are not to judge one another. You are to remember these three truths. Christ is my Savior. Christ is my Lord. And Christ is my judge. Guess what, brother? Christ is your Savior. Christ is your Lord. Christ is your judge. You know what that means? You've already got a judge. I don't need to judge you on these things. That's what that means. And you don't need to judge me on these things, because guess what? I'm already answerable to a judge. The kingdom of heaven will not rise and fall on whether or not your kids watch VeggieTales. It will not rise and fall on whether or not we celebrate Christmas and put up a Christmas tree. It will not rise and fall on many of these things, molehills, which we are prepared to turn into mountains. The kingdom of God is righteousness. There's the gospel front and center. It is peace with God, and it is joy with the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to these things, but yes, we must have opinions on, we must have positions, practice them in our family, that's fine. But we must acknowledge what? That there will be people always, always of a differing opinion. And just as at times I might be scandalized that somebody arrived at that conclusion, you know what I've come, the realization I've come to? that there are lots of people who are scandalized by some of the conclusions I arrive. I know it's hard to believe. 
but there are. People scandalize at some of the conclusions I arrive at. And I hold on to these three wonderful truths. Christ alone is my Savior. Christ alone is my Lord. Christ alone is my judge. That is the context of Paul's admonition there in Romans 14. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Do I refrain from judging in that context? When I do, that is one of the means by which I preserve and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Question number six. I'm going to go through six, seven, eight, nine, ten, real quick. Shift gears entirely. Overdrive. Number six, here we go. Do I know how to mind my own business? Terry Johnson, a significant portion of peacemaking has to do not with actively doing anything, but with just leaving things alone. A peacemaker often need not actually take positive action, but merely refrain from disturbing the peace. Let me put it in my words. One of our greatest callings isn't to make peace where there is trouble. It is to refrain from making trouble where there is already trouble. Peace. Do I know how to mind my own business? Proverbs 26.20, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. Number seven, do I know how to talk to people? Proverbs 27.14, this is bizarre. Listen carefully to it. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will actually be counted as cursing. I'll have to repeat that one. Whoever blesses his neighbor... With a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. Why? Because nobody likes to be waked up so early in the morning. I don't care if it's a blessing. I don't care if it's a good news. Don't wake me up before 6 in the morning. That's the point. If if positive communication can have such an ill effect when poorly delivered, what does that mean for negative communication? If blessing can be counted as cursing, when, when our timing is off, or our attitude is wrong, or it, it just doesn't fit the, the context, the time, or the place. What does that mean when it comes to correction? What does that mean when it comes to confrontation? Oh, God, help me. Do I know how to talk to people? Or, or am I that proverbial rhino, or is it a bull, whatever the big animal is, elephant, in a china shop? I just, I just can't, I can't even start to move without... <coughs> knocking everything over. Question number eight is this. Do I know how to curb my anger? Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. Good sense makes one slow to anger. In other words, if I struggle with anger, what does that mean? You can complete the thought. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory, our glory, to overlook an offense. Oh, we need to deal with impatience. I know I do. We need to deal with frustration. Those things which precipitate anger. Question number nine, do I believe the gospel is God's power for change? Do I really believe the gospel is God's power for change? Do I really believe that God changes people through the gospel? Do I really believe that he transforms, shapes, humbles, nurtures, teaches, matures people through the gospel? Then I will give people some slack. I will cut my brother and my sister a little slack, and I pray they cut me some slack. Understanding we are and we will, always, we will always be nothing more than works in progress. God is working on us through the gospel, and our first and greatest obligation is the gospel. 
Getting people to live in the gospel and by the Spirit of God seek transformation and maturity. And the tenth and final question is this. Do I pray? Do I pray? We need God to soften our hearts. We need God to give us genuine love for others. And we need God to impart wisdom for everything I have just declared this morning. Ten questions. I'm guessing there are probably others, but I think that's a pretty good list. And that is a list I often review, maybe not as regularly as I should. But questions we can ask of ourselves as we seek to obey that command to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How? By maintaining and preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why is that such a big deal? That's Psalm 133, because how good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell in unity. James Montgomery Boyce. With this I'll conclude. Christ is served when we understand that we are accepted by God through the work of Christ alone. And we are therefore joyfully to accept and love all others for whom Christ died. These other believers may be wrong in some respects in our opinion. But we will know that we are all nevertheless part of one spiritual body. The body of Christ. And that we belong together as we seek to live for Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We bless your name for his finished work at Calvary's cross. And we come as sinners. We come as those who are indebted to you, indebted to you for your bountiful grace. And we do thank you and worship you this day. As always, we seek your blessing upon what we have heard. As always, we seek the illumination of the Spirit, the help of the Spirit to understand and to apply and we desire this so much we long for this so much because we want to see your kingdom furthered among us we desire to see you and you alone glorified through us and so we pray it now in the name of the lord jesus christ amen